More so than any other time in recent memory, the Marlins organization is loaded with depth and high-end talent. But for these young players to make it to the show and stick there, they must further develop their skill sets, succeed on the field, and then adjust again while ascending the minor league ladder. It's an ongoing battle with opposing teams, your own teammates, your own body and minds. Every day is a competition for Marlins prospects all part of the process of earning their stripes. This is Eli Sussman. This is Earning Their Stripes, our podcast show focused on Marlins minor leaguers. And I am joined today with Ethan Badowski. Say hi, Ethan. How are we doing out there? Good to talk with you guys again. Really excited about season two. And I'm joined as well by Spencer Morris. Say hi, Spencer. How are we doing, guys? Good to be here. And we're joined in spirit by Ian Smith, who... Um, has made Jupiter his second home this spring training. Um, and you'll be hearing a lot of him during the 2020 season. This is officially the second season of ETS on the Fish Stripes podcast. And it is in the middle of spring training. We're covering the best team in the Grapefruit League for what it counts mm-hmm. for. And it doesn't really count for anything, but it's better than nothing to have a team that is winning so much. I don't know about that, man. You know, I, I talked about this on Twitter yesterday. Sorry to cut you off, but it, it can mean something now with the way the prospects are performing. And I guess we'll get into that, but it well, kind of matters. Well, last year was like the perfect counter example to that because last year they had a record breaking winning streak during spring training. You remember that? They won 11 in a row last mm-hmm. year right in the middle of spring and it raised everybody's expectations. And yeah. And then once the real game started, <laughs> you know what happened. But I know what you mean. We are speaking on the night that updated top prospect lists were unveiled by MLB Pipeline and uh, also by Keith Law at The Athletic, formerly of ESPN. Uh, Both those outlets use very different methodologies, but they come up with the similar conclusion that the Marlins are pretty stacked right now uh, with a nice variety of these high-end talents and depth at different positions. Um, But I know Ethan, and then we'll go to Spencer that I know Ethan in particular has a lot of strong thoughts about the pipeline list. That's probably going to be the one outlet that we always refer to most often when we talk about uh, prospect rankings and they just unveiled their top 30. It's their first big update in like four or five months. Um, so Ethan, what do you think they got right? And uh, what really sticks out to you about how they try to rank all these great prospects? So yeah, when the, when the, the pipeline um, tweeted out their list, and I was obviously really excited about it. It's spring break right now. I got nothing going on. So this gave me something to look at, something to do. But um, I think the first thing that really caught my eye was uh, how high Braxton Garrett was. We saw Braxton hanging around the 8 to 10 uh, mark last year, I'd say. And in most lists, that's where we saw him sticking. Um, but now he's up to 6 on the pipeline rankings. And that gets me really jazzed up because right now the Marlins have top uh, have five top 100 prospects. So if Garrett's sitting at six, that means he's right on the fringe there. And that means that he's probably going to be a top 100 guy um, sometime this season, which is really exciting because obviously Brax has been through a lot uh, with all the injuries that he went through. And he finally had a fully healthy season last year. And he was really, really good for Jupiter at a lot of points last season. So to see him get some really high recognition is great. Garrett's known for a good curveball. Oh, there it is. Jared Parker had a good look at it for strike three. Um, the, obviously, the one thing for me that really stood out was how low they had Monte Harrison. I kind of re- reasoned with it eventually. Um, Monte was hurt last year. Uh, he's going to be in the big leagues this year. Um, but... And, you know, other guys have kind of definitely passed him a little bit to a point. I mean, when you talk about Eddie Cabrera, when you talk about people are really high on Lewin Diaz, people are really high on the 
Rodgers and Brax duo, who I kind of feel are going through this together. They're going through the system together. They've been through it every step of the way together. Um, but Monte Harrison, you know, if you're if Monte Harrison is your number nine overall prospect, you're doing really well. Um, but to me, he's still a top five guy in this system. His tools just jump off the page. I've talked about Monte, um, you know, endlessly, uh, both on here and in writing. But Harrison takes off first pitch. Ball triples through Ramos, so Harrison has a stolen base. Stole 20 in the minor leagues last year. Harrison takes off the third. Ramos throwing from his knees too late. As Diaz strikes out, Harrison steals third too late. Somebody wants to win a job. Ball. So that kind of jumped off to me, but um, yeah, I think I think overall they did a good job. You know, it's pretty much the standard. You got. Sixto, Blade, Jazz, and Jesus right at the top, and then Eddie Cabrera. I mean, he's catching everybody's eye. He's looked good in spring training, and I'm looking for a big year out of him. Uh, hope you know in either Jacksonville or Wichita, wherever the Marlins choose to start him. I imagine it'll be Jacksonville. But um, and then the other thing, one other thing that really caught my eye is Peyton Burdick. He wasn't even on the top 30 list last year. I think he just barely made it at the end of the season, um, and he's all the way up to 14, rightly so. And I think he's a guy that can rise even faster this year and end up as a top 100 prospect if he hits the way that he did last year. So, yeah, overall, I like the list. I agree with most of it. But um, the one thing that I really would change is is Monte. Spencer, give me your strongest takes about the top 30. Um, I mean, I think in general, MLB Pipeline is like one of the outlets that I tend to diverge with the most. But this list I thought was... Um, a little closer than usual uh, from them to what I uh, would have. I think the top seven names on the list are more or less the the seven names that I would have um, in a slightly different order. Um, I think between Braxton Garrett, Monte Harrison, um, those two would be very close for me. I think Garrett... Um, assuming he stays healthy has kind of a similar ceiling to Edward Cabrera. Um, their stuff profile, um, obviously coming from two different sides of the plate, but the stuff profile is, is somewhat similar there. Um, I think that the only thing that we really need to see from him is health and he looks to be healthy right now. So that's uh, great to see. And I think that he can definitely do big things this year. Um, I would. I think that after that top seven is where I would have Monte. I do think he's become a little bit underrated by um, some people at this point. I think if you know you look at what he was able to do while he was healthy last year, um, he showed some real improvements at the plate. Um, I think he's grown into an approach that maximizes his skill set. He's never going to be a guy who hits a three hundred, but he really, he doesn't need to with his athletic ability, his raw power. So, I mean, I think that as long as he can continue to draw walks and get to his power in games, he's going to be an extremely valuable player because he's money in the bank in the outfield. So he projects to have a lot of value in one way or another and could end up being, you know, like a four or five win player if everything really clicks. Um, I think that, Harar Encarnacion jumps out to me as a little bit low for mm-hmm. uh, compared to my opinion here. Um, I think I would I would rank him ahead of a, a few names that they put in front of him. And you talk about guys that are performing well uh, so far in camp. He's been really impressive um, for for a guy who hasn't even played at Double A yet. Um, really hanging in in these big league camp games has been. Uh, I definitely, I think eye opening for anybody who hasn't already had a chance to, to watch him at length. Um, Fly ball out to right. That's well hit. Winokur goes back near the wall mm. and it's out of here mm. through the wind. Gerard Encarnacion goes the other way and it's one where nobody's hit one today. You look at Encarnacion, that's uh, another guy with, um, he really doesn't need to be, you know, like an above average hitter to be a, a real impact player. 
uh, at the big league level. Um, but I think, you know, you're, you're seeing his, his hitting ability continue to mature. And I think there's a chance that he may be, um, you know, an average hitter for contact. And if that's the case, then he's going to be a, a heart of the order kind of weapon. Definitely very excited about what I'm seeing from him. I think he's kind of like right on the edge of, of the top 10 in the system for me. Um, I like to see Evan Fitterer get into the top 20. I think Osiris Johnson's another guy who is rated a little bit low. Yeah, I um, said I said about Osiris that he's not going to be at 24 for long. Obviously, we didn't see him play last year, and that's probably the reason he's at 24. But uh, if he starts performing the way he did when he was a rookie – um, he can he can rock it up this board absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's another guy where his his power really jumps out. Um, like his his uh his ability to to get like his his bad speed is it a mm-hmm. you know kind of like near the top of the scale. He's going to stick somewhere on the left side of the infield, maybe even at shortstop. But if not there, I think he um, projects very favorably as uh, a third baseman, could be an above-average defender if he ends up there. So, I mean, yeah, I definitely think I agree that as long as as long as he's posting even solid offensive numbers, you know, he's still very young. He's I think immediately into the into the top twenty somewhere. I think there's a good case for putting him there right now, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I like the aggressive ranking for Jose Salas. Obviously, we haven't Me really too. seen seen anything from him yet um, at all. But everything that all the reports that are out there so far. Um, paint a picture of a very appealing profile, a guy who is going to stick up the middle. Um, People seem to be a little split right now, whether it'll be at shortstop or second base, but he's a guy who shows uh, the potential to hit for high averages, um, is a switch hitter, could potentially have average power down the line. Um, so a real nice, well-rounded contributor if he progresses like the Marlins are hoping. Um, so yeah, I'm right there with them on, on placing him at six, at 16 in this, in a really strong system, even though, um, we haven't seen him stateside at this point. Yeah. It's going to be a really interesting puzzle for me at Clinton this year with the Lumber Kings, because if we Mm -hmm. assume that Osiris coming back from his injury is probably going to be sent there that uh, Nassim Nunez in his first year in pro ball, his first full year in pro ball, he might go there. And then Salas being a guy that they paid so much money for, and that is so advanced in a lot of ways and even comes from a, a family that has a really rich pro baseball tradition. If he sees some time at the low A level during this upcoming season, and you have all three of those guys that are listed as shortstops, but, but Nunez is the one that you're like most comfortable sticking at shortstop. And then Salas might be a second baseman and Osiris might be a third baseman. And there might come a point where all three of them are on the same team at the same time. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's always going to be fascinating because you know, the most important thing is of course, just getting them all regular at bats at the same time. And to do that, obviously you can't have all of them playing shortstop together. It's going to be, they're going to have to be forced to sides of one another in order to stay on the same field, I guess. Yeah, and you you talk about depth, Eli, and one of the things that I took away from this list, looking at it, is you know Jeter and and uh, Denbo especially always use the term layers of talent, and Mike Hill too. Um, and you know, to me, it sounds cliche. It sounds cliche. It sounds come off as comes off as kind of like coach speaky, but then you really kind of look at it, and you're like, wow, like the Marlins have this entire second layer of talent that we don't talk about because you know they're younger and they're not. Um, in camp right now, but you look at guys like Salas, like Nassim Nunez, like Fitterer, like Victor Mesa Jr., uh, Humberto Mejia, uh, and and Osiris, and you know even the new guys like Sterling Sharp and Burgess and and Brady Encarnacion. And you look at this, and you're like, oh, so when all these guys go to the majors, all the guys that we talk about on a daily basis go to the majors, the Marlins are going to have all these other guys still down in the farm developing, and you just realize that. The layers of talent are real, that there is literally a second layer within this system that is 
just, you know, maybe not just as talented as the first, but has the potential to be just as talented as the first. And so you look at it and I think when you look down these lists, you realize just how talented this Marlins system is and that it's no joke that it's getting a lot of attention now because it deserves it. And we've been saying it for, you know, a year or two, and that's what this show is all about. So uh, definitely really exciting uh, looking at these lists and, and realizing just where this team is at right now. I have a very serious question for you guys. We were speaking mm-hmm. on Tuesday, which is the, right after a game that the Marlins won against the Mets. Braxton Garrett came in relief and he pitched the ninth inning and he finished it off, even though it was a little bit adventurous. And during his adventure, he walked Tim Tebow. He faced <laughs> Tim Tebow, the baseball player, and he did not get him out. Are we concerned? Yeah, that's going to be a big red flag. Um, <laughs> Even had the, he had the platoon advantage too. It's a left-hander against a left-handed hitter. I'm over I here can't... with a smile on my face, just excited that Tebow got on base. I mean, you guys know where my allegiances lie. So, just happy that Tebow got on base. I'm like, hell yeah, he gave him a free pass. Yeah, I mean, at least it was uh, at least it was a walk because giving up a hit to Tim Tebow is. That's the worst. Well, the worst yeah. thing is whoever gave up that home run to Tebow. There's like, it wasn't a broadcast game. I'm not even sure <laughs> how it exactly happened, but he did hit like an opposite. I think he hit an opposite field home run like a week ago against somebody. So I guess that would be the ultimate. Yeah, it was, it was a shot. It I got to think that's that, the thing. Uh, it's like when he runs in, when he runs into one, he can take it over the fence, but he's just got to run into one. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, much like his uh, throwing windup, his swing is very uh, big and long, and <laughs> he doesn't. He has not made a lot of contact at any point. I got to imagine if you let up a home run to Tebow, you're hearing about it in the clubhouse for a while. Well, I'll use that as a as a messy transition into another guy that is kind of built like Tim Tebow, one of the one of the few guys in pro baseball that has that kind of physique and raw power, and that would be Peyton Burdick. Who oh, outfielder who was drafted in the third round last year out of Wright State, baseball powerhouse Wright State in the Horizon League. That so our buddy Ian Smith he has a new article put up with uh, swings and misses on swingsandmisses.com where he sat down with Peyton Burdick and got some of his responses as to uh, the transition in a pro ball and what he's expecting to do this year and the skepticism uh, I guess about his all around game because the one thing we know about is his power and that's. The one thing that definitely made him a, a day two draft pick for the Marlins last year. There's questions about his contact and exactly how athletic he was. And I think that was the first thing that jumped out when I was watching him last summer is that uh, for whatever reason, I don't think people saw that this guy is a totally total freak, not just like the power, but the effort that he plays with and all the, the small things that he does to get himself on base when he's not supposed to enforce mistakes from the defense. And uh, even his like throwing arm played up a lot more than people thought last year. He had like a dozen outfield assists, even though he played half a year. And maybe that's not like the best correlation into defensive value. But yeah, he's one of the the highest. I mean, at the very top of the prospect list, we have all these guys that are in major league camp. And I guess we should actually name all of them just to get everybody on the same page. Sixto Sanchez, the right-handed pitcher. J.J. Bleday, the outfielder. Jazz Chisholm. Jesus Sanchez, Edward Cabrera, Braxton Garrett, Lewin Diaz, Trevor Rogers, Monte Harrison, Nick Neidert, Jose Devers. All those guys are in major league camp right now. But if you're looking at like the next wave behind them, um, even though Burdick is actually older than a lot of them, he's like a 23 year old this year. um, uh, If you want to like separate it into waves, like the guys that are in major league camp right now and the ones that, are knocking on the, on the door behind them and that are have those ETAs of like 2021 and beyond. I mean, Burdick is the guy that if everything like unfolds right for him and if he makes, if he translates that, that success that he had in Clinton last year to Jupiter, then all of a sudden you, you start looking at him as having one of the higher ceilings in the organization, even for a guy that we didn't really know about at all until that mm. it was, wasn't even on our radar until the draft. Yeah, I mean, I think he's done nothing but impress for the last, you know, couple of seasons. Um, obviously, before he was drafted, he was a massive statistical performer. Um, 
for Wright State, like we mentioned. And then as soon as he got to pro ball, he really hit the ground running and put up some big numbers there as well. Um, the first time that I watched him play, I he really reminded me of J.D. Davis for the Mets. And the more that I've watched him, I've continued to really be uh, reminded of, of Davis. Um, when I'm watching Burdick, I think uh, he has really impressive bat speed. His swing path is like a little bit longer than average, but he's able to compensate for that um, and generate a ton of power. Um, he, I think, you know, Davis at the time was a third baseman, but I think, you know, Burdick projects pretty similarly in the outfield, a guy who can hold down a, a corner. He does move very well. Um, like you mentioned, I, you know, he really is what you would traditionally think of as kind of a football type athlete, a guy who's really big and has a maxed out frame, but still moves around really well. Um, and has pretty good underway speed. I mean, I think that he has a really advanced approach. I think the um, the swing will allow him to hit for enough average that the power really plays, and he's potentially a guy who hits like in the in, like a five hole type hitter. Um, so, even it's really tough to stand out in this system right now. But I think that he's been able to do that by by virtue of the way he's performed over the last twelve months. Yeah, I mean, when I, you know, when I saw Burdick coming out of the draft, I mean, all you have to do is look at his slash line from his senior year in college and it just absolutely freak out. Um, I mean, obviously, this is a little inflated because he's playing in the Horizon League, but his bat and just college numbers are usually a little inflated, shorter season, that kind of thing. But his his slash line is just ridiculous. I mean, he hit 407, 538, 729, good enough for a 1267 OPS his senior year of college. I mean, that's just absurd. That just doesn't happen. And I mean, obviously, you know, like I said, those numbers are going to be a little inflated, but you, you know, how much can you really inflate a 538 OBP? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Like, even if you bring it down 100 points, a 438 OBP is still pretty good. So, um, you know, he, 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 he put it all and then he put it all together uh, in, in Clinton this year. And it, it just makes you think, what the hell are the Marlins going to do with all these outfielders if all these guys pan out? I mean, there are only three outfield spots. And you look at the top 15 and you've got Gerard Encarnacion, Peyton Burdick, Connor Scott, Cameron Meisner, Monte Harrison, Jesus Sanchez, and J.J. Blade. That's what, six that I just named in the top 15 and those are all guys that the Marlins I think believe can be a legitimate part of their future um so you, you know it's just like and then you put start putting together outfield combinations out of those guys and it's just a dream um so Burdick is gonna you know if he hits the way he did in Clinton in Jupiter this year and he goes to high a and starts raking he's just gonna rock it up boards and he can make himself into a top 100 prospect so you know, it's just so exciting to see this guy come into the system and and like you said, Spencer, just make a name for himself right away. Just absolutely take off and and stand out in such a great system. And it's you know, it, you never really thought it would happen. Obviously, with Blade, you know, coming into the system, you thought, okay, this is a college guy that's just gonna right away just stand out amongst everybody. And you know, he had an all right year and he looks good in spring training this year. But I mean, Burdick, you know, if if he was the in this uh, system for a full year, you could have made a great argument that he could have been the, the organizational player of the year. And I think he won rookie of the year for the Marlins. So obviously with what he did, you couldn't hand it to anybody else, but um, right. it's just so, it's just so exciting. Um, and, and to have a guy that just enters and just lights literally sets the world on fire. And now he cut his prospect ranking in half. I think you said Eli, or you the account tweeted today. He went yeah. from twenty eight to fourteen. Yeah. Based on um, my accounting, I'm I'm kind yeah. of obsessive about this kind of stuff. Where mm -hmm. I check in with Pipeline um, because they're always uh, their methodology, yeah. like updating their list, is kind of sloppy. Mm -hmm. but the last time that they updated anything was like in early January when the Marlins mm -hmm. made that trade uh, Austin Dean for Deal Wheel Burgos and Burgos mm -hmm. up inside their top thirty. At that time, as of January, uh, Burdick was only 28, and then he made that yeah. jump all the way up to 14 Which over the past couple months. And I joked, 
I joked that like he must have really impressed them at captain's camp and <laughs> the back workouts to jump like 14 spots over the mm-hmm. winter, like in the middle of the winter, like from from January yeah. to March. No, that is crazy. I think, reality, I think the reality is that they just hadn't really evaluated him at all since mm-hmm. last fall. So this was like their first time to really dig into his performance, both the highlights and the stats. And yeah, get a, a better feel and, and really upgrade his tools. I mean, that's the most uh, yeah. amazing thing is that when you see a guy that enters pro ball in one summer and within six or seven months of their pro debut, all of a sudden you realize that their tools are even better than you imagine they would mm-hmm. be. The way that they actually apply in pro game scenarios is different than you thought they would be. That's mm-hmm. that's really a sign that you, you got a, a great bargain. Like at the very least, no matter what happens, yeah a verdict from here he, the marlins amateur draft department needs to yeah. get like huge kudos because no definitely clear that they they saw something in him that basically nobody else did and the marlins you know we talked about this on the pod a lot last year the marlins draft strategy was genius where they saw a hole in the system they saw the power the lack of power in the system and they said all right let's go attack it and they got all these senior got you know all these seniors that were cheap that they didn't have to pay a lot of money for that hit at the highest level in college and and they came in and set the world on fire. I mean, Burdick's slash line in in last year is just ridiculous. 308, 407, 542 slugging. He had 11 home runs. Uh, he walked 34 times. I mean, that's just, you know, it's just everything you could ask for for a guy that's just jumping into the system in the midseason. I mean, even Blade came into the system and had his struggles out of the gates. So for him to jump in like that after playing ball and and you know playing a full college season and then coming in and just playing like that. So I can't talk about this guy enough. I mean, you know, he, he's the guy that I think everybody is going to have on their radars this year. Um, Everybody's going to be watching for him to be the star in the system this year. And I don't think they're wrong at all for doing that. And one thing you mentioned, Ethan, a couple minutes ago is about the outfield depth and an embarrassment of riches that we have. And uh, that points me to one particular storyline from the off season. Uh, when we did our latest fish stripes top 30 voting in December, I, I, I didn't, I know I certainly didn't. And most of us didn't have the balls to put Victor Mesa jr. Ahead of Victor, Victor Mesa. Yeah. Of course, both of them, the Cuban outfielders, they signed together in October, 2018. They combined to get a $6.25 million bonus, but almost all that went to Victor, Victor Mesa, Victor Mesa jr. Only got 1 million of that. And he was the one that, Oh, I mean, he was seven. He just turned eighteen. He was yeah. he was really young when he when he signed, and he didn't have any professional baseball experience in Cuba because of his age. Whereas Victor Victor did. Uh, there's about a four and a half year age difference between them. People th- thought they knew what they were getting in Victor Victor, and the stats that he put up in Cuba yeah. that high pro, he had a much higher profile than his younger brother did. And then all of a sudden, we're barely a year since their signing, mm-hmm. and. Uh, pipeline being one of these sources that flipped on them well it's more so it's like it's a bit of both it's a lot of both in that victor victor coming into last year consensus one of the best prospects in the organization people thought he'd be quick to the big leagues that thought he had a pretty high floor and maybe he still does have that high floor because of his defense up the middle and his base running but uh, as of this latest pipeline list it's victor mesa jr who's number 21 in the system victor victor who's number 26 I know fan graphs was very similar to that in having those guys like not, not just Victor jr. Being ahead of his older brother, but a gap between them uh, just because of what the fact that it seems that Victor jr. Has a chance to actually stick in the center field, but at the very least he offers a lot of promise with his bat. And um, for people uh, that follow the team really closely, uh, if you, you see the way that Victor jr. How the relationships he built with his teammates his his persona on Instagram. He's a guy that I don't know if you'd give it an eighty grade for his makeup, but definitely a, above average. It's he's, he's got eighty that, grade swag. He's got at least seventy grade swag for sure. Right. So he's a guy that outside of all the measurables, he he carries himself like someone that uh, really believes in himself and is happy to be here. More importantly, that he's, he's really embracing this Marlon's mindset. So so that's just a long intro, and I'll go to you. Sp- First of this, uh, Spencer, whether uh, you personally uh, are more confident in which of the Mesa brothers moving forward at, in that balance of uh, ceiling versus floor and um, 
who do you who would you personally rank as the higher prospect at this moment heading into the 2020 season? Sure. I mean, I think they have a similar kind of future value projection, um, two different kind of versions of it, but I think they both project it as bench outfielders uh, for right now. Um, Victor Victor has, I think, you know, those bankable skills with his defense and his base running ability, but like you look at how last year went for him. I, I am willing to give him a little bit more leash on uh, getting things going at the plate, just because I know that, uh, you know, for some players that first year uh, coming over from a new country can be, you know, an added adjustment factor um, that can kind of cause a longer lead time for these guys to, to really play up to their talent level. But I'm not feeling too keen on uh, Victor Victor's bat at the moment. Um, I just think it's it's hard for me to project. You know what I saw from him last year as anything better than a below average hitter at the big league level. Um, he's not going to offer you much in the way of power. So I think the end result is that he is a speed and defense kind of bench piece who can help you out as a late inning replacement um, can help you out as a pinch runner and so on. Um, I would be surprised if he broke out with the bat to the degree that he's, you know, looking like a table setting kind of outfielder, which is what the Marlins were hoping for when they signed him. Um, Victor jr. I think is very impressive at the plate. Um, Very mature hitter for his age shows a good approach and ability to make contact all fields. Um, Unfortunately, he doesn't have the same degree of tools that his older brother does. Um, I think there's a good chance that his game power will kind of play up compared to his raw power as much as that is possible because of uh, his quality of contact, which I think will, you know, continue to improve and be, uh, very high uh, as he matures. Um, but I mean, the tools are, are pretty average across the board. I think he has the profile of a very capable um, plus defensive value left fielder. Um, so playing like towards the bottom of the defensive spectrum, but being above average in that role. Um, and, you know, getting on base and, but, with limited uh, additional value uh, in in terms of power or being a difference maker as a base runner. So I think that he he fits that kind of traditional fourth outfielder mold, a guy who can probably fill in in center or right um, in a pinch, is going to be a reliable uh, hitter who uh, is always going to take a good at bat, but... um, it's hard for me to see the tools really translating into him being an everyday player for right now, unless uh, the power really like takes off unexpectedly or something. Yeah. You know, with so much depth in the system, I mean, it's hard to put these guys, you know, as you know, into future outfield scenarios, but uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, uh, I was caught off guard when I saw that. Uh, first of all, that Mesa junior was at 21 and second of all, that he was above his uh, older brother. But it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Victor Victor really, really struggled at the plate last year. He didn't show, like you said, Spencer, he didn't show a ton of promise at all. It's hard to see any promise out of him. I mean, one thing that I really hadn't thought about until you kind of a li- touched on it a little bit, Eli, was um, he had so much pressure on him. Uh, people thought he was just going to magically just come in and be a 300 hitter right away and hit bombs. and. Um, you know, be in the big leagues by September. And that is really hard to do. People don't just do that. You don't just waltz right into the major leagues, um, especially when you're coming over from another country. So, yeah, I think there's obvious, there was obviously going to be an adjustment period that we really didn't consider. Uh, and I think that was kind of unfair to VVM. But, uh, he, he, you know, if he can really kind of like start putting something together at the plate this year, like you said, his defense is so spectacular and has been so highly regarded. Um, 
that he can still be an MLB player if he can even become an average hitter. Um, and that's for sure. And, you know, it might be uh, table setting or it might be as a fourth outfielder, um, but he's just not going to bring the power that's going to really, really excite you based off what we saw last year. Who knows if he improved the swing in the summer, if he got stronger, whatever. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that much of an impact because of what we saw last year. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like how I feel about Brinson this year. The pressure's off. Um, he's fallen down the boards. I mean, he's at 26 now. He was in the top five at the beginning of the season last year. The pressure's off. It's just go out there and play baseball and and make a name for yourself. And I think that Brinson is in the kind of same situation. We, I won't get too deep into that. But right. um, I, I think for him, it's just, yeah, just go out there and play baseball and put together some numbers and show people that you can still play the game and that, you know, you are a good baseball player and I think he will. I think he'll hit a little better than he did last year because of some of the pressure that's off of him. But, um, you know, I, I hope for his own sake because they seem like great guys, but, um, on, on the subject of, of junior, I mean, he's 18 years old. He played all of last season pretty much. Um, when did he turn 18? Let me see. Yeah, uh, he turned, he turned 18 in the off season right after the season ended. So he played his entire rookie season in the in the minor leagues as a 17 year old, and he put up great numbers. I mean, he hit uh, 284, 366, 398. He hit a home run. He had nine doubles uh, in 47 games in the GCL. So yeah, I mean, he's 17 years old and he's putting up really exciting numbers. And he in he's stateside at 17 years old. So it's hard to project a guy that far out. I mean, he's not going to be at the higher levels of the system for another couple of years, and he's not going to be making a major league impact any time in the near future. Um, so it's kind of hard to say, you know, exactly what he projects as. But I mean, if he just keeps on getting better based off what we saw this year, he has I think he has some really, really high potential. Um, so, yeah, I understand him being as high he is as he is. And like you said, Eli, we didn't have the balls to do it. But I think if we did, a lot of people would have put in Victor Mason Jr. higher than Victor Victor based off what they saw last year. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense to me. And it's just exciting to see Victor Mesa uh, to see Victor Jr. Oh, my God, it's so confusing calling them. But yeah. to see Victor Jr. Um, moving up to number 21 because, like you said, he's such a personality that you kind of like fall in love with him. He's right. got this like great smile and this great personality. And he's got all these like bromances with like Nassim and Osiris that make you feel a part of it. And he's so, you know, he's close, closer in age to me than a lot of these guys. So I relate to him. I almost through Instagram and stuff, but so yeah, he's a really likable guy and, and you just kind of hope for the best for him. It's, I mean, this is an issue for another day because it's a very deep issue, but of course the language barrier and how that impacts people and how we relate to these players and how players relate to each other. Like that's been a big emphasis under Jeter and this entire ownership group where they, set up an education program from scratch that like didn't exist in the organization until 2018 about teaching the Americans in the organization how to learn Spanish and the, all the Hispanic kids to learn English and actually like have formal classes to actually to really reinforce that and have them interact with each other and build camaraderie. And uh, for whatever reason, like Victor Jr. is very comfortable with his second language and there's all these like cute moments of him with either Nassim Nunez or Peyton Verdict, or they spent a lot of time together last year and he films them like trying to speak Spanish and teasing them for it. <laughs> we are taking a break for the fun fest. So I'm here with my guy, Peyton, but he want to say some, something in Spanish. So. Hola, que pasa? Oh, what else? Soy de los Estados Unidos. <laughs> Whereas Victor Victor, for whatever reason, is, is more guarded with that and um, doesn't have the same comfort level and because we don't see him use it the same way and, and we don't see like him and his teammates have that exact same chemistry that it mm. that, that lack of having that element to to him is, is something that I think factors into how we perceive these guys and how much we, we trust these guys where they fit in. I mean, the one thing that just drove me crazy with Victor Victor is that um, – well, well, first, what I liked about him is obviously the batted ball skills and how, I mean, his strikeout rate with Jupiter was 12%, which is amazing <laughs> day and age. That's like half the league average in terms of actually putting balls in play. 
the extraordinary defense in center field. And uh, he was actually playing on a team for Jupiter much of the year that they actually had some defensive issues in the corner outfield spots. So he was covering even more ground than expected and mm-hmm. the running and how efficient he was on the bases, not just stealing bases, but avoiding making extra outs in those situations. But I mean, what ultimately um, got me concerned is just the pure volume because I mean, the narrative early on is that he was rusty because he hadn't played any type of organized baseball at all during 2018. And I think even for a lot of 2017, that because of all the time off that he would need a lot of reps in order to get his, yep. his team together and feel comfortable. But he, I mean, he was, he was lucky. He had a couple minor injuries, but for the most part, he, he played a lot. You add it yep. all up between the regular season in Jupiter after he was promoted to Jacksonville, the Arizona fall league on top of that in September and October. And he had like 550 plate appearances. That's like close to That's the of yep. a full major league season to go all that time with zero home runs in this time yep. in this day and age where we know how important that is to run scoring and how proportional that is. And, and frankly, how that's changing a little bit of like the, the industry and how we value these players, knowing that when, once you get to the big leagues, you, you need to hit home runs in order to be part of a productive team offense. So for him, it's, not e- it's not even just hitting home runs, Eli, like, you know, First of all, shout out Pac-Man on Twitter. I know you guys know who Pac-Man is. Shout out to him. But Pac-Man like always jokes about how he literally doesn't reach the warning track. If you look at his spray chart, he didn't even reach the warning track this year. So it's okay. not even just getting the ball over the fence. It's getting the balls, it's getting balls in the gaps. It's hitting doubles, it's hitting triples and and he hit seven he hit 10 extra base hits this year. He had seven doubles and three triples in 464 at-bats. This is um, not including the Arizona Fall League. So, yeah, it's not just putting the ball over the fence. It's putting the ball in the gaps. It's putting the ball down the line. It's allowing him to use his speed to get around the base paths to make up for the fact that he lacked power. And, yeah, he did kind of start hitting a little better in Jupiter. He got the average up to, like, 250, um, which, you know, at least that's something, and he started getting hot towards the end of his time in Jupiter. But yeah, I mean, his power stats are terrible. You know, his 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 slugging percentage is lower than his on base percentage. Um, and and when do you ever you don't ever see that in today's game? Right. Um, so yeah, he's got to start putting the ball in the air more for sure. And that's a a parallel you can draw between him and Jesus uh, Sanchez as well. Um, Sanchez obviously. At least, while he he's hit the ball on the ground a lot more than we would like, uh, he has at least hit those balls on the ground very hard. Um, so he has that part of the equation solved. Um, so, but we'll we'll see if if you know the Marlins are able to uh, work out uh, that issue with both of those guys because there's definitely a lot of um, value there to be uh, unlocked if if they're able to. Um, work through that on the player development side. Well, I mean, as we're speaking about Victor Victor right now, he's on top of the world. He is one for his last one. He, he had an RBI <laughs> hit in the game today against the pitcher that I don't recognize. So at least he's, he's playing in major league spring training games. And it was last year that he had that hamstring issue in like the second mm-hmm. game that he played in spring training. And that's, that. I think that may have played a part in, in setting him back. And um, when he was trying to rack up those at-bats in like a low-pressure situation and he wasn't able to do it, whereas this time, so far, he's been healthy. And even if he's not in the mix for an opening day roster spot, you'd think that he still plays a lot over these next two or three weeks in these exhibition games. And so just being in these situations where there's really nothing at stake for him and where, as Ethan said, the pressure is totally off of him, um, that could be nothing but a positive considering where he's coming from. Um, The one other guy... The last main guy that we're going to focus on on this episode is that one top prospect in Major League Camp who hasn't actually appeared in a Grapefruit League game so far. Almost everybody else has appeared not just once, but multiple times, some of them extremely impressive, most of them extremely impressive, and that is why we're so optimistic, and that's why the team is winning games, I guess, because these young players are immediately producing in these exhibition environments and, and showing that they're of a comparable talent level to some of these other organizations. The one guy we haven't been seeing is Sixto. Sixto, who um, at one point, probably a year ago, was the consensus top prospect in the organization. Right now, there is not that consensus. It's I think most people 
would agree. I personally think he's the top prospect in the organization. Pipeline says so, but it's not a consensus anymore. Um, there are some doubts about his physique and about his, um, even though he's coming off this great season of production at a little bit at Jupiter, but mostly at double A Jacksonville. And uh, even though he's still so young, he's going to be entering his age 21 season and uh, likely going to be debuting in the majors during this season as well. That, um, he, he's still somewhat of a mystery, even though I, I saw him pitch a lot at Jacksonville last year. The fact that he's uh, seemingly healthy right now, but still not being used in spring training games. And I guess a little bit of a red flag that he hasn't appeared in any games at this point. And for a guy that uh, is a little undersized by traditional starting pitching standards, um, how exactly do you weigh uh, all the great assets that he has but also some of the things that make him atypical of what you would want from a top of the rotation guy. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel comfortable with six though. Um, in his long-term outlook, um, it's, you would definitely like to see him out there, uh, with the same stuff that he was showing in double a last year. Um, but until, uh, as, as long as he's healthy and he's ready to go for, um, the you know the start of the minor league season and he can at least get a little bit of work in during the spring um that's enough for me i think the the bigger real question for me with with Sixto right now is will he start missing more bats um at some point uh he it's not that he doesn't strike hitters out at this point you know he does strike out his a decent share of hitters but um and he also didn't face very many hitters last year because um, he didn't allow all that many base runners, uh, which gave him you know fewer opportunities for strikeouts as well. But um, I think when you watch him pitch, you see you know three legit major league pitches. Um, at times, all three of them look plus. I think um, the off-speed stuff. It tends to be a little bit more in the above average range than than true plus most of the time, but I think you see him pitch within the zone a lot and just go right at hitters, um, which has been very effective for him. He has been able to generate a lot of weak contact um, and work efficiently um, with his pitch count, which you know that's great to see. But when you look at the stuff that he does have, I mean, you just have to feel like he could be striking more hitters out. And if he's going to be a true frontline starter, I would say that, I mean, he, he does need to, to start striking out at least a few more hitters. Um, it's, it's uncommon to see like a true, uh, a pitcher who consistently performs like a frontline starter um, with a strikeout rate in the range that his has been for now. Um, I do think the the potential is there um, for him to do that. If he starts to, um, work in more more chase pitches and just kind of <clears throat> alter his uh, approach to pitching a little bit. But I think, you know, even for, for a guy who really doesn't have very, very many professional innings to his name and only a few above the A-ball level to this point, I was highly impressed with uh, not only the quality of his stuff, but his ability to really command his fastball at a high level last season and I think he's he's more or less ready to pitch in the major leagues um, this season, I think, if, if the Marlins really wanted him to. I think it's pretty clear that that's not really what they're necessarily planning for. Um, if he's really lighting things up, I'm sure he, he will make some starts in the second half. But I think we're just seeing them really take their – their time with him, getting him up to speed. They probably don't plan for him to throw a huge innings count this year, um, as a lot of teams tend to do with their young starters, to kind of bubble wrap them until uh, they really feel comfortable that they're ready to to contribute at the big league level. Um, but you know, I don't I don't think Sixto is a guy who needs to go out and necessarily throw 130 innings for the purposes of his in-game development, so to speak. I mean, I think that he definitely needs to prove to everybody that he's capable of consistently handling those workloads. But in terms of what you see from him on the mound uh, to this point, I, you know, I think he he's tracking like a number two starter. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's only twenty one years old. So yeah, the Marlins can kind of take his take their time with him and and make sure that uh you know no injuries kind of derail him. But you know, you talk about the makeup and how people are kind of concerned about you know how big he is and stuff. Sometimes things just don't make sense. Sometimes guys that are really successful just don't make sense. Drew Brees is like 5'9". You know what I mean? And people always talk about how little Drew Brees is, and it held him back from being one of the top QB prospects when he was coming out. But Drew Brees is one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen. Russell Wilson, also short. And, and that you know, as a quarterback, you're not supposed to be short. But sometimes it just works. And, and I just think as long as – as Sixto is peppering the strike zone the way he did, as long as he's mowing guys down the way he did. And you're right, Spencer, the, the number of strikeouts is definitely a bit of a concern. Um, you know, you weren't seeing Sixto maybe a little bit towards the end of the year. You weren't seeing Sixto put up these double digit strikeout games that you're seeing a guy like Eddie Cabrera put up that Trevor Rogers was putting up a few times last year. Um, and, and yes, from a top line starter, you would like to see that, but I don't care if he looks like an offensive lineman. If he's throwing 102 and putting and painting the corners um, the way he does, then it, it just works. Sometimes it just does, and I'll be okay with it. Um, you know, he made it through the season healthy last year. Obviously, they limited his innings, especially towards the end of the year. He was only throwing like five or six innings, and he was, you know, he would have like 70 pitches by the end of those innings. But I think this is something we talked about a lot, Eli. Uh, Eli with you know, me and you talked about a lot, and I think we talked about it too on the pod a little bit, is the concept of him literally throwing too many strikes. You yeah. mentioned, Spencer, him changing his approach to pitching and just mixing in a, a slider in the dirt every once in a while. He was literally just throwing too many strikes last year to the point where, you know, guys were making contact and hard contact because the ball was in the zone. And when you're playing in double A, guys are going to hit the ball if the ball's in the zone because they're good players in double A. So, I, I would watch a lot of these games and kind of keep up with the like the pitch tracker thingy majig and who knows how accurate that really is, but it, I guess it kind of gives a good representation. And it just seems like every pitch that he threw was in the strike zone, just constantly. And the fact that he was even able to rack up, uh, let me get the number here, a twenty four percent K per K rate and an eight point four eight K per nine. The fact that he's able to rack that up with how much he's in and around the strike zone is pretty impressive to me, I think. Um, but yeah, you would like to see that those K numbers up, you know, K, your K per nine up above 10 or even higher than nine and that K rate up a little bit higher than it is right now. Um, so I definitely think like that's something you want to see from him. But I mean, with six, though, it's just like, you know, he's falling in these rankings to like some, some of these sites are having him in like the forties. And I just think that's crazy. I mean, this guy had such a good year last year. You know, there were a little bit of, there was a little bit of struggling at the beginning of the year. You know, his numbers in Jupiter weren't great. And his numbers at the, at when he started in Jacksonville weren't fantastic, but the dude ended up with a 2.69 FIP um, after all was said and done a 1.03 whip. Like those are just fantastic numbers in double a at, at your, your age uh, 20 season, your age 2021 season. So yeah, it was really his age 20 season. He turned uh, 21 in July. So yeah, I mean this, you know, to me, it doesn't, this guy's a top 25 prospect. Uh, It should be consensus. I don't understand how he fell after he had such a great year last year and stayed healthy. He pitched the entire season once he was back from that little, uh, from that elbow injury that he had when he came over from the Phillies organization. So I'm, it definitely pisses me off a little bit to see him falling down these rankings. I think he's getting a little bit disrespected considering how good he was last year. And, and I just think once the Marlins kind of let him go, first of all, I think he's in the majors by June this year. Uh, if he pitches the way he did last year, June at the, at the latest, really. And I think that he can jump in and be the Marlins ace right away. Um, you know, I don't know if he will, because I still think, you know, you got Sandy and Pablo and uh, who else is up there? Caleb. Um, and, and so I, 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 you know, I, can't you can't say he's the he's going to be number one he's going to go up against the scherzers and the you know the kershaws and everything but 
I think once he really settles in, like I think he's your opening day starter in 2021. Um, if he comes up to the big leagues and and can pitch the way we all think he can pitch, so I'm very high on Sixto. I loved what I saw last year from him, and there are definitely Spencer. You're right. You know, it's not all butterflies and rainbows because there are a little bit of strikeout concerns with him. But I just think sometimes it just things just don't that work out just don't make sense. And I think that it, it you might be in one of these situations where a guy that's pretty hefty, don't get me wrong, he's large. Um, but look at CC Sabathia is to me a Hall of Famer, and he was fat as shit his entire career. You know what I mean? So um, yeah, I mean, he was also like eight inches taller than six. yeah, yeah, and you know he was a beast, and CC is a freak athlete and and but you know like i said sometimes a guy's makeup just kind of works and i think Sixto is one of those guys and, and ian has compared him to johnny cueto and if you're getting johnny cueto like i said i don't give i don't i don't care if he's 200 and, you know, or if he's 300 pounds if you're getting jo- the kind of production that johnny cueto can put up out of a 21 year old guy and you think he can have that kind of career then you'll live with it and and i just think the marlins are in the position where they can kind of take their time with him and, you know, maybe they want him to cut some weight just to be sure. Um, but he's going to be a really good pitcher. And whether it's a one or it's a two, um, you're going to have a lockdown pitcher in your system. And I think the Marlins should be elated that they have him. Yeah. Uh, and Ethan, I think this is right before we went on air that mm-hmm. probably more so than other outlets, you're, uh, you're kind of suspect of the evaluations that we get from fan graphs. And everyone, mm-hmm. they're, they're they were one in particular that were kind of low on six zero, and, and their particular concern was with his fastball and that the the particulars of his fastball and the movement that it, that it gets mm-hmm. doesn't really lend itself to swing and, swings and misses. That's more so of a pitch that's going to just get a lot of soft contact and that the, the life on it at the very end uh, could be a reason why that he's not missing as many bats as you'd expect him to for a guy that is constantly getting ahead in the count mm-hmm. and whatnot. I mean, that's why I just want to see him in these major league mm-hmm. games. No, me too. Me so too. Just get a really close look. And there's just such great camera work that we could get on these major league broadcasts that aren't quite the same yeah. with Jacksonville in order to like really look at these pitches and how that, that fastball is moving at the, at the very ends and, and how hitters are responding to it. And um, no, I'm definitely with you. You know, I, Obviously, we want to see Sixto pitch because he's Sixto, and we're excited about him. It's the same reason that we're so excited to watch Jazz and Monte fly around the bases, and and you know we're excited when Devers goes out there and fills some ground ground balls at shortstop. Um, we want to see Sixto pitch because he's Sixto, but yeah, there are some things that we need to really look at and evaluate with him, and and there are only so many evaluations that can be made at the AA level and from you know, box scores and highlight videos and tapes and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, w- I would like to get some video on Sixto and just see him in these spring training games, and I hope he can. And he's another guy, like, that we talked about with Mesa that's just got personality that you just love. So he, he, he he's the number one prospect. He should be the consensus number one prospect in this system, and he should be a consensus 20, top 25 prospect across the board to me. I mean, I will say that for me at the moment, I – don't have him as the number one prospect in the system. Interesting. Interesting. I just, I continue to be more and more of a jazz Chisholm guy. Uh-huh. Um, the more I get to see of him. Um, I think that he's got a flair, man. He's got a flair for the game. That's just awesome. Yeah. I mean, whenever you see a player like him who has off the charts tools and off the charts makeup, that tends to be a winning combination. Um, players like that, you know, even if the performance may not be quite where you want it to be, um, I'm willing to cut them plenty of slack. And I think that in Jazz's case, especially last year, he got off to an absolutely terrible start um, when he was in the Arizona system in Double A. Um, but as the season progressed, he kept improving at the plate. Um, he consistently drew quite a few walks throughout the entirety of the season kept showing that plus power. And I mean, I think at this point he's proven that he, he is a shortstop. Um, you know, earlier in his career, there was some people thought he might be playing a different infield position, um, perhaps even center field, but I think he's really come into his own at that position. 
I love the power. I think at the very least, he's going to get on base and be a big power producer. Um, but there's a chance that he could be just like a just a shade below average to average hitter. And then maybe he's just hitting in the heart of your lineup and uh, playing up the middle for you. And then you're talking about an all-star type of player. So I think that's a, he's a guy who's quite close to the majors and is showing a pretty reasonable projection of, of being an above average everyday player. Um, and you, you talked about how he got better throughout the year, Spencer. Look at what he did when he got to Jacksonville. I mean, right. He had never, so he had never walked more than 8.8% of the time. That was in 2018. In 20, or that was in uh, low A. In high A in the Jackson, in the Diamondback system, he was walking at a 5.6% clip. And then this year, his walks took off. Uh, He was 11.3 when he was in double A with the Diamondbacks, and then 11.7 when he was with the Marlins. And then his numbers, he put up a 156. Weighted runs created plus when he got to the Marlins system in 94 plate appearances, hit 284, 383, 494, and the ball was jumping. Um, he, he hit 21 homers last year. So he, like you said, he only got better, and he only got better when he came to Miami. It seems like he was – I don't know if there was something going on there. You know, I'm not going to speculate about that, but he was just so happy, it seemed like, when he got to Miami, and it reflected on the field because he – just tore the cover off the ball once he got here. So, yeah, every day. And then he, it, you know, would you guys say he's been the star of the show in spring training? I mean, who else is really taking the spotlight from him besides, you know, with him swiping bags literally out of the ground and, you know, hitting the ball hard? I mean, he has been the guy that I would say has jumped off the screen at me most. And I think a, Marlin, a lot of Marlins fans and, you know, writers, um, you know, like Spencer, who are just kind of, neutral viewers would definitely say that he's been the most exciting thing out of spring training from, from the prospect side so far. Yeah. Great play from him and some great quotes from him too. Like there was that particular quote that really stuck out for me from MLB network when they did their 30 clubs in 30 days where jazz was talking about some of the changes that he was looking to make with his swing and but I know you get a little pull happy sometimes. So what are, what are the things that you're working on to, to offset that? Uh, all I'm working on now is just barrel control and being consistent with my barrel. Um, talking to the hitting coaches here with Derek Duncan, James Rawson, and all those guys, uh, they really helped me to control my barrel and keep my hands in the way that I can control my barrel. So for those guys really being there for me and not trying to change the swing, more so of controlling the barrel i feel pretty good and of course now we're finally seeing that in some spring training games as well how it's really translating and being able to make that type of quality contact that he's always been able to do but not swinging and missing as much as he used to and Mm -hmm. how that really opens up like such a high ceiling for him if he's able to balance those two that quality contact and without missing in the first place but he he cut down his strikeout rate when he got to the Marlins, he was striking out at the highest percentage of his career when he was in the, with the Diamondbacks in Double A this year at thirty three point eight percent. He cut that down to twenty five point five when he got to the Marlins system. His lowest before that was in two hundred seventy plate appearances in rookie ball at twenty seven percent. So yeah, his adjustments and his development once he got here is no joke, and you can see it in the numbers for sure. I think like when you talk about the kind of tools that he has, he's a very different player at this stage. Um, but I think that to be a, a guy who who plays up the middle with, with that kind of power in his bat, he, he reminds me a little bit of Cattell Marte. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cattell was a lot more contact-oriented as a young player, um, whereas Jazz has always been more power over hit. Um, there's some similarities to young uh, Xander Bogarts there um, too, I think. So I think that this, the ceiling there is really, really high, and he's really not all that far from reaching it. And uh, this is a good way to tease the fact that uh, I'm expecting us to make some updates to our own Fish Stripes top 30 list between now and opening day just because we've seen so many of these players, Jazz included, in spring games, and now we've had all these other a prospect list from other outlets to consider and to help us guide our own opinions. And we know Spencer in particular sees jazz as the number one guy in the system. And 
So if, if we have a chance to reconvene and re-vote on this between now and opening day, people can oh, check back and see how the, the rankings change between the ones that we had out in December and the ones that we have going into the regular season. Uh, a reminder to everybody to head over to swingsandmissions.com and, and to read that profile that Ian Smith did on Peyton Burdick. And he's going to have a lot of written content over there during the season. And he'll surely be on the pod a bunch during the year and sharing a lot of the observations that he had for Jupiter. This is on the Fist Stripes podcast. And we'll play more ETS during the 2020 season at a time where this farm system is more jacked than it's been in recent memory. And all these guys that have such close proximity to the majors as well. Eli Sussman, along with Ethan Badowski, Spencer Morris, beginning of ETS season two. Thank you all for listening. Go fish. Yeah.